I would like to uh, welcome uh, each and every one of you here uh, this evening for this uh, seven-day uh, retreat that we have here uh, together. In this, the opening uh, talk uh, with you, I'd like to give a general overview of the teachings and uh, the practices. Uh, numbers, as you can see, are rather uh, modest uh, uh, this year. And in talking uh, with uh, Dora earlier, both uh, today and uh, previously, uh, there has been uh, an exceptional number of uh, uh, cancellations. And a whole variety of uh, uh, reasons, everything from the coronavirus has deterred people, um, the situation uh, globally that's uh, taking uh, place there with the politics, the incredible fires in Australia, huge amount of uncertainty, and all of this is having a real uh, uh, impact. And more and more people I uh, talk with at this present time just feel the wish to be at home, be in a certain kind of safety, I think uh, with regard to being at home and there's much more hesitation in, in the air for, for the travellers. So I do want to express appreciation to all of you from within India and for the uh, internationals as well as in terms of making the effort. You're very, very welcome. Delight and pleasure to uh, uh, see you here and uh, with the group could be more contact and communication uh, uh, together and let's make it uh, a very useful, uh, insightful and uh, uh, effective uh, retreat together. I invited Sushindra who is uh, here and she uh, very kindly has uh, accepted my invitation to come and uh, to give some support. She and I can meet in the morning time, breakfast time, further on, on this and so with regard to uh, the one-to-ones and uh, uh, presence uh, here and other aspects uh, of the day um, she will also be uh, available and I do think it's really uh, helpful and uh, beneficial as well in terms of the contact and the communication since quite often quite a lot of questions uh, do uh, do arise there. Also to uh, thank um, Ashok who is here and has kindly been giving Dora some uh, uh, good support as well as others who uh, arrived here uh, earlier, Wolf and Benjamin and uh, others. The monastery itself, just a couple of minutes uh, with the uh, monastery for those of you who have been here uh, previously, uh, every year, uh, bless him, the uh, Lord Abbot uh, continues to uh, develop the place. So now there's been an immigration of the kitchen from the uh, one-star facility at the back there for some years to, we should put it three to four star uh, uh, there, some uh, extra uh, buildings and more uh, tables there are many more plants there, care for the uh, trees that's uh, taking place and uh, much, much more. 
And just in, and just in relationship to that, in terms of mindfulness and practice, it is quite often in life and worth, well, well worth remembering that our attention to the small things of life, to the details uh, of life, really can be a support, obviously not only for ourselves but for others as well. And our environment is part of environmental life and our resources, our skills, our knowledge, not only to take care of the being, which is a great task itself, but also to really take care of, it, of our environment. And that means people, it means creatures, and uh, it uh, means the, the immediacy of the nature and all the ways that we uh, influence it. So mindfulness uh, practice in a process of mindfulness to liberation is not personal. It's not a mindfulness which is exclusively about the improvement of the sense of self there. It is a mindfulness which really expands itself, which includes inner and outer. And the, the Buddha, right from uh, day one, we might say 2,600 uh, uh, years ago, in the use of this word mindfulness, which has been used consistently throughout the tr uh, tradition, is unwavering in the giving of a priority to it, it's both inner and outer. At the moment, the outer has become the, um, the distant cousin, we might say. But the relationship and the intimacy of the inner and outer clearly are inseparable. Every breath, every single breath that you and I take while living on this earth itself is a consistent reminder of the complete necessity in life of the outer for the inner. It comes from the outside of ourselves and it's drawn into the being and the oxygen touches the cell to release what is not needed, the carbon uh, is, ex is expelled and we engage in this inner and outer world. The confirmation of many is just breathing. Is it any wonder that you and I are deeply concerned about the pollution of the air? Of course, we need to be. In the uh, uh, mindfulness, and I, I may uh, just give a little uh, time to uh, speak to you uh, on this uh, uh, theme, since it will be something of a, a thread uh, running through uh, the days here that the, the word itself in the Pali, that's the, the language that the Buddha spoke, the word is sati, S-A-T-I. And the general sense of what its meaning is, it is the uh, mindfulness, is the application of attention as a contribution to seeing what we attend to, what we are mindful of, as clearly as possible. And that application of the mindfulness applies equally to what's called the past, what is called the present, 
and what is called the future or might be in the, in, in the future. So mindfulness, an important feature of it is this application of our relationship to what was or precisely with the language what did arise this is the language of the Buddha for the moment what did arise what is arising and what might or will arise in relationship to what is arising or what did arise rather important too not easy to follow I agree Mindfulness is the application of attention, consciousness, or interest, or presence, whatever language we use, to what did arise, to see clearly, with the potential for some clarity and insight and understanding from what did arise, to be in touch and connected which is a primary aspect of the meditation, of course, with what is arising, and to be very clear about that. And when our mind goes to the future, therefore it is to be clear about what is arising, or what might arise, with regard to what we call the, f the future. And this exploration here, is a vital and important contribution in our life to harmony, clarity and well-being because we are, you might say, blessed. We have the, the benefit of the capacity to be mindful human beings to see clearly what is taking place. And if we see clearly what is taking place, if we really see clearly, the problem goes out of it. <coughs> If we see clearly, the problem dissolves. If we don't see clearly, the agitations, the stress, the greed, the worry, the anger, the fearfulness, the agitations, or whatever it might be, will continue. So mindfulness is not the answer, it is not the solution, but it is certainly uh, valuable, rather necessary in a way, step towards looking, inquiring, investigating, and coming to an understanding. And the teachings uh, make this uh, quite clear here. When a human being, she, he, we, us, have given and directed the mindfulness to the past, in which some emergence of some understanding has come from it, that understanding from the past gives support to the present which contributes to skillful action. When there is an understanding with relationship to the past, that understanding is of benefit in the present which in turn gives support to actions with relationship to the future. And some of you will know very directly from your first-hand experience, perhaps in the past you have experienced a very distressing situation, an unresolved situation, a traumatic situation. This situation has impacted upon you, perhaps in childhood, perhaps in adulthood, or whatever. 
and time has uh, come and there's been some exploration of that possibly with the good support of others with practices, with teachings and much much more and you know and can sense a genuine resolution of that which was unresolved that which was not clear which caused issues in the daily lives it's now resolved, it's over you can sense it, you feel it you, most importantly uh, you know it uh, there, and there's a real sense from that understanding there, you can, as it were get on with your life the greater sense of inner peace and clarity and calmness so therefore, as I say the mindfulness doesn't say there is no past it doesn't dismiss the past as unimportant it doesn't exaggerate the present above everything else and it gives acknowledgement and recognition in life that human beings in our movement of life do have a sense of present to future if you didn't we would not be here this evening it took some planning to get here it took some thought to get here it took some communication for better or worse with the transport people but we got here and it's that sense and movement I'll just give a small example of ways past, present and future with the uh, mindfulness uh, as well we were having a uh, we were at Dr. J some of us were at Dr. James guest house um, yesterday uh, uh, evening it's in probably 10-15 minute uh, walk from uh, here, it's a rather beloved uh, uh, guest house and Dr. Jane serves uh, exceptionally delicious uh, vegan food out of the Jane tradition, bless them uh, there and we just touched on rather briefly the significance of mindfulness and so easily uh, happened the West does this rather a lot unfortunately uh, there it will see the benefit of something there. and say oh this is really beneficial this really really helps whatever that may be about and it then completely neglects all that gives support to it so one of these many areas, one which is fairly common, as you know, um, is yoga. And lovely to hear from uh, uh, Dora a few minutes ago that uh, two of you are here, uh, uh, yoga teachers. Uh, the, uh, it's a kind of sister tradition, brother and sister tradition, to what we engage in here, as with yoga, there's precious and vitally important emphasis on connecting with the heart and mind and the body for that integration, harmony and well-being so vitally important uh, for us but also, like with the mindfulness it's vulnerable 
to isolation. It's vulnerable to just thinking of it in terms of mind and body. And there can easily be a forgetfulness that yoga means joined to, connected with, yoked to, is yoked to much else as well. It's uh, yoked to teachings of um, non-harming and non-violence. It's yoked to moderation of lifestyle. It's yoked connected to uh, karma yoga, uh, the act of service. It's connected yoke to, it's it's the yoga of knowledge, to know that which is really important for human beings and for our species and for life on earth. So sometimes there's some emphasis on one, yoga of the asanas we might say, but not to neglect nor forget that there's an outburst and an outreach of yoga which addresses many, many areas. It wouldn't be possible for the beloved yoga teachers to be able to address karma yoga and jnana yoga and bhakti uh, uh, yoga and the yoga of lifestyle and the yoga of ethics and much, much more. But it's up to sometimes the good yoga teachers to give the reminder, or people like me in a privileged position, um, or teachers can't because they're focusing on one aspect, but check everything that goes with the yoga. That's important, to check everything that goes with the yoga. It's a precious and profound uh, uh, tradition, and Patanjali and the other great uh, yoga teachers of the distant past, their texts remind one those precious verses of the sheer diversity of the exploration. That's yoga. Now, same, it's rather similar with the mindfulness world. Mindfulness is genuinely of uh, uh, great uh, benefit, and in the conversation of good food uh, yesterday evening, expressing those of us who've been around for a while, it's a little unfortunate that mindfulness gets associated with being mindful of the present moment, not being judgmental, learning to calm the body, reduce the stress, work with the pain, all of which is truly important, my goodness me. You'll hear it from me ad nauseum over the days. Uh, It truly is important. But its importance is not self-importance. It's not important unto itself. It's important in its relationship as a contribution to the vast extent of human welfare. Mindfulness is a relationship. And one important aspect of this relationship is ethics. It's uh, indispensable. And in looking at the area of ethics, the underlying primary ethic, and it's genuinely a challenge on human consciousness, It's to live an ethical life in which one neither acts nor speaks 
and is very deep, nor even thinks of ways and means which give support to any violence upon any creature on this earth and does not give support to any kind of exploitation and if one says whoa this is a very powerful ethic the ethic is so important the demands of the nation state to go to war one can't support it it violates the ethics of non-violence the violence of the speech yelling, shouting, abusing, putting other people down one can't give support to that yeah. because it traumatizes men, women and children that kind of speech the use of the uh, ethics in our time really questions lifestyle yeah. so my beloved Dharma friends <laughs> I think they're my friends sometimes they say to me oh Christopher that's really lovely what you do you offer the Dharma you travel to different parts of the world and give support to people blah, blah, blah. And of course it's very lovely and sweet to hear that that's primarily reserved for one ear I suspect the smaller one out of the two the others sticks out further than Prince Charles's and, um, and the, other ear, the other ear is Christopher what are you doing getting into aeroplanes? you're not setting a good example you're encouraging other people to fly don't you realize that flying is part of the environmental problem, etc. So I have to listen to two. I'll get the e e e e e emails. So some of you might also be getting the same as well, by the way. So it's worth uh, reflecting, reflecting on. So just to. Uh, an area of the mindfulness. It's a mindfulness. What is the ethic of mindfulness and transport and aeroplane And I think it genuinely is worth looking at and reflecting on. My view is just it's a view, of course. I'm very agreeable to the view because it's come from here. If a man and woman is travelling on this earth, and that the purpose and intention with that journey is towards deeper understanding, clarity, perhaps a something, sense of something uh, spiritual, something to open up the life. I take the view that journey by aeroplane is completely worthwhile. Completely worthwhile. I think staying in one's home country and identifying with it could be more problematic yeah. um, if in the travelling you have loved ones who live in another country who live far afield not like in, in Europe we can travel on uh, trains easily we don't have to use uh, uh, aeroplanes and you wish to go and see that loved that one might be the, your partner it might be a close uh, relative or, or whatever 
I still say it's worthwhile traveling. There are many people on this earth too who travel and they're doing extraordinarily important work. They're, they're uh, working with the refugees, they're, they're working in Africa giving support to animals, they're working with uh, children, they're working to protect the environment, they're working to teach others and give support to others for change. I say those planes are worthwhile. Those journeys are really, really important. And we shouldn't deny ourselves that when it's in the service of something greater uh, there. And in many ways, including uh, uh, yourselves uh, here. So we're not afraid to look at these sensitive issues. We come to some view about it. The view, of course, may change in the course of, of time. I do not think it's valid to uh, use aeroplanes to, to go on holidays, to stay in these uh, uh, five, four, three-star hotels uh, on the beach and rot. I think it's an utter waste there, these villages and townships, and some of which I know very, very uh, well. Um, that have, have been destroyed, they've been plundered by, the, by tourism. And that money which is made in those villages and towns and beautiful seafronts, that, that money doesn't stay there. It doesn't support the, the people. They're worse off. That money is being taken out. And that money is being used to build in other places as, as well. So it's, it's really worthwhile you know, looking very carefully, what can I as a human being say, be mindful about, reflect on, discuss, what can I say yes to, and what can I say no to? Neither. Not only part of the issues of your life and my life, these yes and no issues, we are getting a sense that the earth, the life of the earth, is depending on what we say yes and no to. It genuinely is critical. And these teachings and practices are to look deep, are to raise the difficult questions, are to reflect, are to see what changes we can make and keep the voice alive. Keep the voice alive so that we put pressure on those who engage in violence, engage in abuse, and engage in exploitation, engage in money-making, which is so cruel and insensitive to the need. So we have a voice, and part of the teachings and practices here is to find that quiet authority, not just to be a nice little Buddhist, nice quiet person. No, no. I want to enliven something, is the Buddha's good language to wake something up in the being that might be sleeping or sleeping at times. That's a, a precious thing to engage in. Meditations are a step in the right direction. Of course, I have to say that I'm a meditation teacher, but also the, the practice has confirmed it <laughs> over the years. All right. So, with the day, let me talk a little bit about the day with you. It's a reasonably uh, full day, it depends of course which tradition you're from, so reasonably full. So 
We start the day at 5.30. So we, Dora gives me the nod, so I've got it right. Okay. So we start the day at uh, uh, 5.30, and it's a full day right through, really, to 9.30, a hot drink at 9.30, and finishing shortly after, after that. One of the features of the day, of the, of the teachings and the practices here, is that we give validity to all four postures. Sit, walk, standing, recline. The, uh, uh, the Buddha, uh, blessing, was uh, quite keen, quite is an understatement, very keen on the application of mindfulness for calm and clarity and insight and liberation with regard to all four postures. For those of you who know a little of the uh, history, we're here in Sarana, where the teachings first uh, began, the yogis at the time, but the Buddha was a, uh, was, was a radic- was radical at every, uh, at, uh, at every uh, uh, level. So small things which might seem not very significant, but in the world of the yogis was significant. So what I have in mind here, the strong belief of the yogis, and it's still found in the Buddhist tradition as well, unfortunately, strong belief of the yogis was you sat, you sat, and you sat again, and you kept on sitting until you got enlightened. That was the view. And if you kept sitting, the combination, the strong view of the time, it still sticks around, that by constantly sitting, staying still, one was not making, this was the language, any new karma. Because for karma you have to be doing something. Either thinking or speaking or acting or making karma, good karma or bad karma. So you weren't making any new karma. And because you're a yogi who is just sitting, you are burning out your old karma. This is the view. So you just kept on sitting as many hours a day as possible and you burnt out your old, you didn't create anything new and perhaps in the middle of that process there would be a dramatic, life-changing experience which you woke up, which you got enlightened, you got mosha, you got liberated. This was the view. The Buddha didn't buy the view. Probably. And felt and regarded that Human beings, and this is from his own experience here, previously, the form, this is a sitting meditation teacher talking, it's not in the abstract, I promise you. The form called sitting genuinely can really offer and provide some really profound and deep experiences there. But it's got such an iconic status. Let me just look behind you. 
It's got such an iconic status in the tradition. The archetype of it has got so deep, one imagines sitting is what it's all about. And when we exaggerate one thing, the tradition has done it, in my view, the yogis did the same, in my view, and it, it will be at the expense elsewhere. It has to be. So a person may have a lovely, precious sitting experience, which is beautiful and important and valuable. But she or he may find in coming out of that experience that, oh my God, what happened to my meditation? Oh my God, I was sitting, I was so calm and clear and insightful and surely nearly liberated. And now I'm out of the sitting posture and my mind is all over the place. Most of you, most of us, I'm sure, can relate to that. So, Buddhas then gave equal priority, as I just stated to you, sit, walk, stand and recline. There is a view, I, I hear it enough, because I've been hearing it for 50 years, that it somehow makes a retreat which is sit, walk, stand and recline somehow lighter. Oh, no, it's not. It's no picnic. And it sounds like that if one is sitting morning and night, that's more strict. Oh, no, it's not. It's just a view and opinion. What I could say, having done lots and lots of sitting, I know some of you will be thinking, oh, he's referring to Zen. Oh, Christopher's referring to Goenka retreats or, or whatever. Having done both, in, in the Goenka retreat, although I've been, you know, been a monk for three years, lots of practice, so when I did the Goenka retreats, uh, frankly, it felt like a holiday camp. Others say, oh, it's so intense. The intensity is not the sitting. The intensity is the attitude of mind around something. And that generates the pressure. Intensity, I'm not a big fan of. I'm not convinced that intensity is liberating. My observation with intensity with people is that they just get more intense. <laughs> because they're practicing intensity. So it's developing very nicely until the crash comes. So then, well, if I'm not intense, then it's going to be lightweight. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. If I'm not intense, there's more potential to see things clearly because I'm not so intense. Nothing lightweight about seeing clearly. Extraordinary practice. So this middle ground between the lightweight you know, we'll have a ten-minute sitting and then we'll have an hour to recover from it. That would be the lightweight form. Or the intense form, sit and, and if you move you get shot, etc. It's got to be some middle way between these two. And as much as possible, our own modest small way, the middle way is precious because it's liberating from the extreme. I don't want to live a lightweight life. 
find it vacuous, empty, pointless, useless, utter waste of a good human being's existence. <coughs> but I don't want to live a frantic, in, intense uh, uh, way of life over the, the, the stress and frustration and burnout that, that will accompany it. So this finding of the middle ground is what we are doing, sitting, walking, standing and reclining. In the morning time, tomorrow morning, I'll speak in more detail with regard to the four postures. You will see on the notice board there some barest uh, minimal uh, instructions. There. And in just coming back, since we're in Sarana, and the very first discourse it sometimes takes, for those of us who have a, a, a real love of what might be the original teachings, we might uh, say, to look very carefully, sometimes with the good help of the Pali scholars, Pali is the language that the Buddha spoke, um, at the language which was used and the language which you and I use today. Because the human experience 2,600 years ago and the human experience today, it ain't no different. I can't say that we have evolved as creatures and I can't say that we haven't. Just because we've got a lot of mobile phones doesn't, there's no proof of evolving as a creature. Might be the reverse. Anyway. So, come back to the discourse. It's the teaching of the middle way. It's one of those themes well worth adopting. And the middle way in the discourse, the initial discourse, is a concern about the condition of the self. The condition of the self. This notion of I and me and my. And the two extremes that human beings have, which are problematic, which go on morning, noon and night very easily, one is the regularity of the desire to build ourselves up. Self-importance. To wish to be over and above the other or the others. To be successful by having and owning more. To be somebody, having status and position and power and privilege and so forth. The building of the self up. And the other, which is never far away, is the putting of oneself down. And in the putting of ourselves down, it's the view of negativity, self-blame, sometimes stronger, self-loathing, self-hate, not feeling good enough, the envy of others, uh, the despair, the suicidal thoughts, the self-harm. It's a tragedy 
of the circumstances of the individual, of the reaction against oneself, undermining of oneself, not feeling happy in oneself, not feeling good in oneself, and all of that putting of oneself down. And very easily, and humanly, the reaction to that is to try and build oneself up. But that building up, like a house of cards, can crash easily. Is an alternative to those two extremes of building oneself up, putting oneself down, uh, etc. And part of our task of mindfulness and clarity in meditation is to have a sense of something which is not one nor the other. Let life unfold itself in a committed way, and I'll talk to you about that in due course. So, just in uh, some summary uh, here, there's the mindfulness practice in the four postures. With the uh, day itself, you will see on the timetable uh, the four postures. Uh, we, Sajindra and I, we will be making some times to uh, tomorrow, starting tomorrow, to meet with a number of you uh, on a one-to-one uh, uh, basis, essentially to check in how your day is going, uh, any questions that you may ask, we may have some questions to uh, uh, ask you, so that as much as possible there is the ongoing support day by day for each person. Who is, who is here. We have during the day as well the mindful work period that takes place after uh, uh, breakfast. There's the bell ringer. Do we have bell ringers all set up for tomorrow morning? So there's the, the bell ringers and a few other uh, tasks. And you're, again, your good mindfulness, kindness and support uh, really helps the collective there. I know too, of course, the Quite a few of you, just like myself too, just a couple of days ago, or more recently, have uh, travelled quite uh, extensively uh, there. So we trust that you'll have an extremely good, long, unbroken, deep, dreamless sleep. No guarantee, but that's the wish. So, uh, is there any hot drink on the agenda tonight? Maybe? I hope so. <laughs> you hope so? Pardon? I arranged it with Sonal. So, alright. Alright, okay. But do you think. Alright. So, Sonal is the uh, cook. Five-star food you'll see at lunchtime tomorrow. But he also has been working extremely uh, hard on the pre- uh, uh, preparations. So, as you know, as they say in India, hot drink is in the hands of the gods. <laughs> we'll find out in a few minutes or, or two. Dora will perhaps let us know. Eh? At 8.30. At 8.30. Okay. Very good. So, <clears throat> the first bell of the day is at uh, 5.30, and 
there is the uh, yoga class here in the hall starting at 5.45 uh, there. And one of the um, precious aspects with the, uh, the yoga is uh, many, many find that the morning uh, yoga class or some other form of movement if you wish to do it individually is a tremendous support for the whole body uh, through the rest of the day and it's a little unfortunate you know that the religious stuff uh, gets in the way so what I have in mind here is like in the monastery when I was a, a, a monk I'd already trained in uh, yoga actually uh, as a, a yoga teacher and but in the monastery mention the word yoga and then out would come oh Hinduism that was what it's yoga available for everybody and then there'll be this kind of uh, uh, dynamic so he, he did have yoga those of us like yoga in, in the hut it was mildly subversive <laughs> etc but but here we're in a Buddhist monastery do your yoga Five star, and have uh, knows no, everybody fine with it. But they have these little religious tensions that go, uh, go on. It's I know it's medieval, but it still hangs around. Coming to the point, the uh, yoga class might be a little bit tired, and you need some more rest in the morning. Take it. You need to miss the first sitting in the morning. No, no problem. But breakfast is only served once at 7.30. If you miss that, it's going to be 12.30. Alright. So, um, but the, as I say, the rhythm of the yoga uh, really, really helps. It's just that stretching out. The, the, the yoga teachers um, really are a tremendous support for the whole uh, program here for all of us. Good harmony that it brings. So what's the time uh, now? So it's around um, 10 minutes past 8. Uh, at this time, so let's um, have uh, two minutes to stretch the legs and then we'll have a 15 minute meditation together and by that time we'll be at uh, uh, 8.30 and then we'll know <laughs> okay, so if you need just to stretch the legs for two or three minutes I'll give the gong a ring and then if you would kindly return and then we will have a short meditation together.